All right, thank you for joining us for this live stream. I am coming to you from the global headquarters of one of the world's best capitalized banks in one of the world's best capitalized countries. And it is back to school time in the Northern Hem Hemisphere. And we have a eventful term in biology. We're gonna learn about vaccines and their impact on COVID. In economics, we'll see if central bank uh, bond purchases impact equity markets and fixed income markets. In business studies, we're gonna think about the implications of uh, profit margins and inflation. And, and in ecology, we're thinking about the impact of greenflation. And then in the near term, we're looking at the risk off uh, market, which for us, we think has a lot to do with what is going on with companies in China and whether uh, there's some contagion effect around some of the, uh, the debt issues there. So we've got a lot to talk about and I wanna start in with uh, Mark Anderson, my colleague here in uh, Switzerland Mark, we've had uh, the market has, we've seen an underperformance in value stocks, uh, but now we're getting through the pandemic. What do you see ahead for the equity markets and where we should be positioned in them? Thanks a lot, Mark. Well, so first of all, we certainly have to recognize after what was a phenomenal start to 2021 in terms of reopening dynamics, reacceleration of economic growth rates, that we have seen a little bit of a lull that you mentioned China. We've both seen retail sales that flowed quite a bit. In US, consumer sentiment has certainly dipped as well. And we see that broad-based business indicators have come off their peaks. However, we think that uh, a good amount of this slowdown has been linked to the spread of the Delta variant. And what our view is essentially here is the first take is that this is a bit of a temporary nature in, in, in our view. And the main thing is that for many developed markets, we've now seen that vaccination rates have come a long way. So for uh, many countries like US with 64% of people having had at least uh, one shot on top, we have a number of people that have had COVID, which means that we're relatively close to this degree of herd immunity, which also means that in the countries where we've seen Delta, the Delta wave come early, it had also peaked off and most importantly, also not really have had a major impact in terms of hospital beds being used or death rates really going uh, much higher. So we think it is a temporary kind of slowdown in economic activity. And because of these vaccination rates, we're gonna see uh, an acceleration upwards. Uh, maybe before going to China, I'd say that Denmark is kind of an interesting study, maybe just to finish off on the on the COVID path and not to be home biased here as somebody from Denmark, but because we have 74% of the population being vaccinated, more than 90% of the adult population, they've essentially decided to open up the country as if everything was normal. And these are some of the reasons that we think that there is still this reopening dynamics, which is going to carry us in towards the, the latter end of the year. We're going to come back to central bank policies, but the same with some of the slowdown we seeing now a lot of debate uh, around it in China. We're essentially believing that the government is going to be there both in terms of stimulus, in terms of monetary policy, but also in a particular case in, in China of some of the, the uh, managing the default scenario that we're seeing. But I'm sure we're going to come back to, to that one. Okay. I mean, one uh, last question is, uh, do we see this kind of zero tolerance uh, policy in Asia, what's what's the impact of that? Are we going to start to see some of these countries open up? You know, what, what, what are you looking at there? 
absolutely. So there's there's many interesting dynamics going on in Asia, and we're going to come back to some of them afterwards. But essentially, in places like Australia, New Zealand, we've had this more zero to, uh, tolerance policy where vaccination rates have only picked up with a, with a bit of a lag. Japan as well. I'm going to come come back to to that. And and broadly speaking, when we look at the kind of the global economic outlook, this leads us with these kind of reopening dynamics that gives us a clearly above average uh, growth potential for the remainder, not only of this year, but also as we look into to 22. And the reason that we have been so constructive on equities over the last 12 months is what this means for uh, corporate earnings, uh, where we've seen that for many countries, and you mentioned something like, like the Asian countries, Mark, Japan as well, where we've seen that earnings growth has significantly outpaced kind of the, the, the market dynamics. So basically that there's still a bit of an upside and catch up potential in some of these uh, economies. This kind of stronger growth also means that we have a constructive view on commodities. Uh, it means that for fixed income oriented investors, you'd want to position a bit on the, the shorter end of kind of the, the duration specs. Leslie going to come back with, with, with that, given basically the mismatch between normal GDP growth and where we have interest rates as well. And maybe just on the final slide to kind of uh, to sum up, I'd say on, on some of those Asian dynamics, if we were to, to turn to the last slide here, uh, we basically see that Japanese uh, earnings, uh, that was right, so just the next slide, thank you. So, so what we've essentially seen when we come at it from a Japanese perspective is that uh, the Japanese market essentially had a, a, a significant lag to some of the other developed markets in terms of uh, accepting uh, the vaccines and therefore also reopening and getting people vaccinated. Uh, today we have 64% of the Japanese population being vaccinated. Uh, the country has significantly uh, or significantly reopening and it means that a very cyclical market like Japan uh, it's certainly a market that we like, that we think has a, a significant catch-up potential. It's basically seeing that that the earnings growth here represented by Nikkei 225, 12 months forward earnings per share growth is picking up to some of those early leaders like the, the US uh, equity uh, market. Maybe just to finish off, Mark, you mentioned some of the other countries with zero tolerance policy that just maybe highlight something like Australia and New Zealand that was very successful in that kind of strategy in 2020, where they basically had a relatively normal life with, with some lockdowns at, at times if there were outbreaks. But after we've seen that this very, very, um, uh, this, this Delta variant, which, which spreads a lot more aggressive than some of the earlier variants of COVID-19, essentially has meant that some of these countries are, are moving away from the zero tolerance policy going more aggressively in on vaccination we've seen the catch up and for some of those countries like maybe just to highlight New Zealand we think there's upside to the currency is something that we have an overweight position on in in some of our portfolios simply from the fact that they're hiking interest rates both later this year and and into next year in, in our expectation all right mark thank you and now we're going to turn it over to leslie in the united states leslie there's a lot going on in the u.s right now let's start with the fed and this uh tapering that we've heard a lot about what do you see for what the fed is doing and where that's going to have an impact well this is this is very apropos particularly since we have a fed meeting you know tomorrow and you know it's not our expectation that they you know announce a taper tomorrow given the fact that they are still you know recommending substantial further progress and we've seen a bit of headwinds in terms of you know non-farm given the you know the current delta variant but to be honest you know the fed has been very transparent and it's not necessarily the taper or when the taper is going to occur that will have a large move on interest rates but it's more about the pace 
of that taper. And whether you believe is the taper will occur at the end of you know 2021 or the beginning of 2022 will really not have a marginal difference in terms of or a material difference in terms of the change in interest rates, but the pace will. And if we look sort of on the left-hand side, it's still our view that the Fed will slowly pull back on being accommodative. And when we say that, they still are being very accommodative and they still keep financial conditions loose and we believe they'll still keep borrowing costs low. But the, but the over time, we don't think that the, that the actual pace of tapering will be fast. And so our expectation is that it'll take anywhere from eight to 10 months for them to actually complete the tapering process. And with that said, when we look on the right, when people think of tapering, they automatically think of you know, what occurred in 2013. Now today's environment is much different for, for multiple reasons. But just from one of them, you know, outside of the transparency that we've seen from the Fed, I mean, our expectation and given what's happening in, you know, the U.S. economy and the global economy, interest rates are going to rise and they're going to rise into the end of the year, maybe 175 to 180. But there's not going to be the spike higher. There's not going to be a large move in nominal interest rates. And with that said, we're also not expecting, although we do believe that the inflation that we're seeing right now and the level of inflation right now is transitory and these break even inflation expectations might come down, they won't collapse. And what we show on, on the right chart there is that during that taper tantrum, you had nominal yield spike, but break even expectations collapse. And therefore, the real yields went higher, borrowing costs went higher to corporations, borrowing costs went, went higher to, to consumers. But in today's environment where we have average inflation targeting, and in today's environment where the Fed is clearly dislocated taper and tightening, we think it'll be more or less a gradual rise, and most of which is already priced in. Okay. So now the next question is about these fiscal packages that are getting debated in Congress. And I guess, you know, if you if you read the papers in the United States, it's uh, these packages are considered to be potentially significant changes in the United States on the order of some of the more historic things that Congress has done. I don't want to get into the politics of it. I want to just, you know, what is Mr. Market going to think about these packages? Do they, do they matter for the U.S. markets? Do they matter for the global economy? Well, I mean, I think a lot of this has already somewhat been priced into the market. I mean, the infrastructure is supposed to be the $550 billion will be passed. The budget resolution is expected to be lower than what was originally anticipated and saves around $2 trillion. This is over a very long period of time. So when it comes to the overall market in and of itself, yes, of course, it's a net positive. But again, particularly, but it's over 10 years. And not only that, I mean, although the market, these are all positive things in the marketplace, you know, there's still a lot of ambiguity. And this ambiguity could create volatility. And what, what I mean by this ambiguity, it's not yet clear how exactly it's going to be paid for, whether it's through taxes or maybe you have to increase supply of treasuries, which could you know, lead to interest rates higher in 2022. And of course, we have things like you know the debt ceiling debate, which just sort of adds an extra layer to this unknown. So therefore, I mean, although a lot of this in terms of what the uh, budget resolution might be, or at least around the amount is priced in, and therefore it's priced in in terms of the outlook of growth and term in terms of interest rates, there's still a lot of volatility that we expect at the end of the year around that. Okay. And then uh, next question is, you know, the Delta variant, we saw a dip in consumer confidence, maybe in consumer spending. What, uh, what do we see from here for the growth outlook in the U.S.? 
Well, I mean, Mark had actually mentioned earlier, which which is true. When we think about what it, when we take a look at interest rates, right? Now, as you pointed out, you know, we we saw a decline in expectations for third quarter growth. They might have come down from say six to three percent, but the number going forward in terms of an absolute number is still quite strong. Now. The fixed income market in and of itself had been pricing in fairly slower growth, even beyond this recent, you know, revision, if you will, of third quarter growth. And we know this, the third quarter growth revision occurred because of the Delta variant, people aren't traveling as much, you know, lodging or, or even, you know, in terms of going out to dinner, all really played its part. But, you know, when we think about what we look going forward, right, our outlook is obviously, as, as Mark had pointed out earlier, I mean, a lot of these vaccinations are, you know, becoming much more widespread. Even some of the peak Delta variant that we saw from some of these uh, southern states are actually starting to, to level off. And more importantly, when we think about, you know, growth going forward, we're thinking about the household and the consumer. Now, jobs openings are around, you know, 10 million. That's more than the number of people that we have unemployed. Besides that, the household in and of itself, in terms of the amount of excess spending that they have, is very high. Also, when you look at things such as, you know, the debt to disposable income, these are also very low. And one of the things that differentiate this round versus say the great financial crisis is the household. For because the recovery since the great over the great financial crisis and the housing debacle the household was pulling back. They were delivering. This is an entire, entirely different environment. So that's why we think the household balance sheet and the consumer will continue to lead the way stronger. All right. That, uh, you know, never underestimate the power of the American consumer to spend and spend on credit. That's, uh, that's an important lesson. Uh, now, I want you to answer the next question and then take us into the kind of the, the more private client side of this call. So last question is based on everything you've said about what's making its way through Congress and the uh, importance of the, the personal balance sheets, how do you see that impacting the equity markets as we close out uh, the year? Well, I mean, one thing that we talked about earlier and one thing we do expect, we do expect volatility to, to go higher, whether it's going to be because of the fiscal stimulus or because of some unknowns regarding what the Fed might do. You know, a lot of this is priced in, but we are coming from very low levels of volatility after Jackson Hole. So we do expect volatility to rise. With that said, a lot of the headwinds that investors were first concerned about, you know, some of these what we call cost push inflation numbers, whether it be wages or input or input costs because of supply chain bottlenecks, you know, has not impact net profit margins as much as what was in, in anticipated or concerned about, you know, about six, seven months ago. In fact, we have actually, we've actually seen some of these net profit margins actually continuously grow. And when we look at the equity market overall, is that, you know, particularly the equity market, is that, you know, there's going to be obviously pockets of vulnerability as we head into the year, and there's no question. But overall, we see we continue to see a lot of strength as we do view transitory inflation, delta variants, you know, all these type of headwinds to the economy as temporary. You know, and, and in the longer term, we you know, we expect 4,600 at the end of 2021, 5,000 at the end of 2022. So we do anticipate the equity market will do well. And with that said, when it comes to somewhat of a positioning, you know, we've, we have this sort of pro-cyclical type of allocation, you know, in the U.S. because of some of the respite that we saw in the summer as we saw some of these headwinds due to the Delta variant. 
However, we also realize that this is not the, we're not in the, the first inning anymore. We're well into mid-cycle. So we do have a bit of defensive, such as healthcare within that allocation as well. And I think the important part of this is to stay diversified. So with that said, Mark, this concludes the public segment and of this live stream. And I, I would hope that all of you have a safe and, and happy month and, and until the next live stream. All right, Leslie, thank you so much for that. And now as we move to the client-only portion of the call, we are going to go to Kieran in jolly old England. How cool is it that I get to just uh, ask questions to people all around the world? So, Kieran, question to you. Have you been to this pub where Ted Lasso has all those pints? Is that a real – no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> in, instead of asking that, uh, what are the main messages that we in CIO – are focusing on as we head into the end of this amazing year. Great, thanks, uh, thanks, Mark, and we'll be sure to check out that pub sometime soon. Uh, I think just to take a step back for a moment, because I'm sure many uh, clients watching this call will be thinking, you know, look, equities are at very high levels. We've 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 seen this uh, big rally um, so far year to date. Same time, bond yields looking low, it's quite hard to earn returns in fixed income. A lot of uncertainty about what to do uh, in that environment. Well, the next slide shows you that some of the good news, as, as Leslie and Mark already touched on, um, is the fact that global growth is likely to stay strong, as you can see on the next slide. Um, and earnings growth is also very strong. Um, we can see just picking out some of these that the S&P 500 is likely to see earnings in 2022 38% higher than we were in 2019. So you're looking at that chart uh, of the S&P thinking, you know, is looking, is looking high, is way above the pre-pandemic peak, but earnings are also at that level. So the good news is that this rally we've seen has been well supported by growth and by, and by earnings. Now, the bad news on the next slide is that, you know, as Leslie said, there are plenty of risks out there and cause for concern for volatility, whether that's uh, related to China, related to COVID, related to the US debt debate, um, lots of reasons to be concerned about volatility. And that's particularly worrying at a time when bond yields are at low levels, which makes it hard to diversify. So I'll just touch on some of the areas that we've been talking with, with clients about on how, uh, how to navigate this environment uh, as we head into the end of the year. So first, uh, on the next slide, within equities, uh, we think it is best to continue to buy into the winners of global growth. Uh, Mark earlier made a great case for Japan in terms of the vaccination rates um, picking up there. We've also got signs that fiscal stimulus might be coming uh, after the uh, upcoming election following the resignation of the prime minister. So plenty of catalysts for Japan um, to catch up. Um, and at the same time, we like companies exposed to economic reopening. As Leslie just touched on, we've seen that underperformance from some of the cyclicals uh, relative to the tech names over recent months, mainly on concerns about the Delta variant. But if we see this trend now where many of the countries, particularly in Asia, who had pursued this uh, zero tolerance uh, strategy with COVID are now seeing much faster vaccination rates, and we'd expect to see that more of that reopening trend taking place, further reopening happening in Europe and North America as well, um, boosting some of the uh, companies are more exposed to economic reopening. Uh, so things like the energy sector, financials, uh, et cetera. Now, some of you in, in the sort of fixed income space might be wondering, well, what to do there? Well, the next slide says, you know, you've, you've got to look for unconventional yield. And Leslie touched on it, there's 
low levels of interest rates, the Fed is likely to keep uh, policy relatively loose, you know, even if they taper. So you're not going to get much return in public bond markets anymore. And there's certainly no, no areas outside of Asia high yield in public bond markets that we would deem attractive um, at the moment. So we have to think a bit differently, look to things like senior loans, uh, one part of the uh, yield space we think that still does look relatively attractive, private credit and other. Um, and also looking to foreign exchange. It's been quite a quiet space in foreign exchange so far. And this year, the dollar against the euro, at least relatively range bound. But we are seeing this divergence coming through in terms of central bank policy. Some central banks much more likely to be moving towards hiking interest rates, moving towards tapering, whether that's New Zealand and Norway among the smaller central banks. We group the UK and the US as relatively early movers in that, in that process. Uh, against places like uh, the Eurozone, Switzerland, Japan, likely to keep rates low for an extended period. So we do see opportunity to uh, take on trades such as going along the British pound relative to the Swiss franc. Mark mentioned talking about the uh, New Zealand dollar as well. So there's some opportunities to earn yield in the fixed in, in the foreign exchange space and by tilting more towards some of the relative hawks against the doves. Now, in terms of diversification, it's not so easy to do that now with uh, bond yields at such low levels. Um, so on the next slide, you know, we're looking at uh, alternatives. Um, now, that's both in the traditional sense in terms of uh, uh, hedge funds, private equity, where you're employing managers to uh, take on some different strategies on, on your behalf. Um, but we also think about it in terms of alternative payoff structures. One of the big trends we've seen over the past couple of years is that skew has hit multi-year high levels. So that means that people are paying a lot for downside protection and they're not paying a lot for upside exposure. And that means you can get some interesting payoff structures uh, coming up in terms of things like selling a 10% out of the money put, buying a 2.5% out of the money call. Some of these can help diversify a portfolio, help change the exposure uh, to uh, equity markets, reduce the linearity, get some convexity into the portfolio and we think that's attractive um, at this time of uncertainty, but where we fundamentally still see a good upside um, in stocks. So that's, that's for some of the, the shorter terms. Now, some of the longer term dynamics we're talking about, and uh, you know, I think Leslie touched on this trend already. The next slide talks about healthcare, and both from a cyclical standpoint and from a structural standpoint, we think this is a, an attractive sector. In a more tactical sense, it tends to do quite well when we see the ISM peak, so when leading indicators start to, to drop off their highs, we tend to see healthcare outperform. That started to happen again this time. Um, we think that that's a, an encouraging trend from a tactical basis. And, but also longer term, if you look at healthcare, it's, it's, you know, some of it is, is, is pharma, but then there's a lot of it which is you know, also exposed to longer term growth. So things like med tech, health tech, these are areas which you know, we see structural growth opportunities. It's a relatively undigitalized sector. Um, we think there's lots of scope for, for growth in that space. So we think overall an attractive place to be uh, cyclically, but also structurally as uh, some of these uh, secular trends um, play through. You know, the next longer term trend we talk about uh, for the fourth quarter is uh, sustainability and more specifically the zero carbon transition, as you can see on the next slide. Um, seeing lots of headlines, you know, certainly in Europe, about the uh, gas prices rising uh, very sharply. You can see on the chart on the left, 
um, how carbon prices are also have rallied very, very sharply. And we think this is all part of this zero carbon uh, trend um, as uh, the world tries to reduce emissions at the same time as increasing renewable capacity in a sort of uneven way. And weather can be uncertain in terms of wind volumes, in terms of how cold it gets. We see these periodic uh, moves up in, in energy prices. We think the best way to play this is actually with a bit of diversified exposure. So playing some of the traditional energy names, investing in commodities where we have got scope for upside, especially if we see a colder winter um, this year, but also investing in some of the companies which are helping solve the problem in terms of creating clean air solutions, green tech, renewable energy. We think that that, that sort of dual strategy is a great way to play the, uh, the zero carbon transition, which is already having a big impact uh, on uh, markets uh, today. And then finally, um, we talked last year and the year ahead um, a lot about the next big thing, about things like fintech, green tech, health tech. And we're also now thinking about some of the enablers for that space, who's going to create the space for those companies to grow. Um, we've recently re uh, released a great report on digital assets and distributed ledger technology. We think that's one of the enablers uh, of the fintech space where we see a lot of potential for growth in the companies which are exposed to that trend and are going to be beneficiaries um, of that trend. Um, we've also been looking at cybersecurity as the world gets more tech, you know, talked about green tech, health tech, fintech. The more tech we have, the more need there is to protect uh, the data, to protect that technology. And we think that cybersecurity is another area where we're likely to see uh, above average growth uh, for, this, for the foreseeable uh, future in the, in the growth of that industry. So I think that's, uh, that's all from the six trends we've been highlighting for the, for the fourth quarter. You can see that summarized uh, just on the, on the next slide. Um, so inequities buying into the winners from global growth and fixed income looking for unconventional yield, diversifying portfolios with alternatives, and then in the longer term space looking for opportunities in healthcare, uh, winners from the zero carbon transition, uh, and also in some other longer term themes like uh, the uh, digital asset space, um, as well as cybersecurity. All right, thank you, Karen. Uh, I think that's a great list, and you know, I, this the the point about the net zero transition. I think is so fascinating. Uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and we're trying to navigate that. So, thanks for highlighting that and the other points. And we do have a couple of minutes left, so we are going to take some questions. Uh, I think the big question we have is what is going on uh, because of Evergrande and will this impact uh, the Chinese market and then the rest of the markets and how would that change our view uh, about the reflation trade in Japan and our, our view more generally. And I'll say a few words, but then maybe I'll turn it over to Mark who's done a lot of work on this. Uh, you know, China has uh, quite a bit of uh, debt in its system, but it has done a good job not making a balance sheet issue into a liquidity issue uh, many, many times. And in fact, this year already, uh, the Chinese banking system has cleaned up uh, you know, non-performing loans of a much larger size. So we think the banking system can certainly withstand this. Uh, nevertheless, without intervention uh, of, some, of some form to stabilize the situation, uh, that does pose downside risks for the market. But I think we feel like uh, it, the, the Chinese government is aware of the risks, has taken uh, 
bolder actions in the past to deal with situations like this and is likely to uh, take action to kind of ring fence the, the issues here as well. But with that, let me pass it over to Mark. Well, uh, Mark, I think you already covered probably the most important topic. So I would certainly say if we take the big picture view here, I think the Chinese government has certainly tried to delever the, the economy over the last couple of, of years. And that, of course, includes this property sector. But uh, of course, when we're looking at the, the world's second largest economy and a property sector that is so important, we take it very seriously when we have a default situation. But we do think that the Chinese government is going to do what it can to ensure that we have uh, an, an orderly kind of default plus a restructuring case around uh, Evergrande. Nevertheless, of course, there will be uh, likely some uh, ramification to the, the property sector. We are likely to see that both sales volumes are coming down, prices are, are slowing most likely as well into the negative, maybe mid-single-digit space. And it means that the, the Chinese economy will certainly grow at a healthy pace next year, around 5 to 6%, but uh, a little bit of a, of a slowing here and certainly a risk case that we are that we're monitoring. But from a global perspective, as long as this is dealt with, with and in an orderly fashion like we're expecting, it's not going to have uh, kind of uh, ramifications into the, the global economy. All right, thank you. Uh, that's about all the time we have. So uh, we want to thank you for joining. You know, just when uh, the COVID situation, we're seeing case counts falling in the United States, we're seeing the United States open up to European uh airline traffic or airplane visits uh, by vaccinated people. We get this uh, shock from China on, on the other side of the world, although markets have stabilized a bit today. Uh, but we're here for it. We're around the clock 24-7. It is our great honor and privilege to be with you on this journey. And uh, we look forward to our next live stream. And, uh, but we'll be watching the markets every day between then and now. So thank you all very much and make it a great day. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.